The presenting sponsor this season is Subaru. Now it's time to talk about the 2020 Subaru Crosstrack. This is the car that's built for the last minute, why not, let's do this thing explorers. A car built for any adventure. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and increase in available horsepower, you'll be able to drive across dusty back roads and snow-packed trails to reach that hard-to-reach location. Plus, you can embark on that adventure with confidence and safety technology that comes standard in every Subaru Crosstrek to help with awareness and peace of mind. No matter what wild idea you're chasing, the Subaru Crosstrek is a good choice to get you there. Love is out there. Find it in a Subaru Crosstrek. You can learn more about the new, more powerful Crosstrek at Subaru.com. Before we dive into this week's show, I wanted to let you know this episode addresses some political issues. As a reminder, REI maintains a strongly nonpartisan stance and does not endorse candidates or political parties. At the same time, REI does support an active electorate. Well, Claire, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. Thanks for having me. I love that you've had the wild idea to combine trail running and environmentalism. <laughs> well, running is is the most pure form of like being outside for me as an athlete, but really for anyone. And like that includes like walking, right? So say, yeah, you're walking outside, you're running outside, you're hiking and you're breathing air and you're looking at your surroundings and you're able to see the natural world or your urban environment at a pace that's like digestible. So that's how I've started thinking about, okay, well, like what is the air I'm breathing? Like, is this high quality air? Is this clean air? You know, is there like trash all over the trail? Are there oil wells in the background of the trail I'm running on? And, oh gosh, like another no trespassing sign. <laughs> so I think for me, it seemed pretty innate, the the connection of seeing where can we run? How can we run? And like, how is it for our bodies? I don't think it's that wild, but thanks. If you exercise outside, or even if you just enjoy being out in nature, pledging your time and energy to protect this planet is really not such a wild idea. Claire Gallagher is an accomplished trail and ultra runner who realized she had a platform to fight climate change. Environmental activism might not be so wild, but the path Claire has taken to become a professional athlete and a dedicated advocate has been anything but predictable. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Claire's athletic career took off in 2016 when she won the Leadville 100. It's one of the most celebrated ultra marathon races ever, set at high altitude in the Rocky Mountains near the town of Leadville, Colorado. It's almost as though Claire came out of nowhere. She'd never run anywhere close to the 100-mile length of Leadville, and yet she set the second fastest record by a woman in the history of the race. Since then, she's competed in and won ultra marathons around the world. But to see how she became such a badass athlete and an environmental activist, we're going to go back to the beginning, even before she exploded onto the international trail running scene. 
So how did you get into running growing up? Yeah, I did a bunch of sports, like a pretty standard suburban youth in outside Denver. And I grew up in Englewood, Colorado. And then I ran in middle school and then high school. I did cross country and track. And that's where I started getting recruited to run in college because I was decent in high school at cross country and, and track. And yeah, so I ran at Princeton in New Jersey, and that was not like as great of a quote career, just because it's very common for a distance runner, especially female distance runner, to just get like sucked into the dishwasher that is collegiate women's running and, and spit back out. What does that mean? Like, I mean, it's just the culture for better or worse. And I do think things are changing, especially in the last five years. I graduated six years ago. But yeah, like eating disorders are are like crazy prevalent. There's And at Princeton, like we had these pretty like intense academic lives, um, even just to like hang on. You still had to work your butt off to hang on academically. So so if you're trying to run at a high level, it's vision one, like compete nationally and, you know, pass your classes and and maybe specialize in a certain academic field and have a social life. Yeah, you're not sleeping much. <laughs> and and so for me, that that ended up in a lot of injury. I was injured, I think, like five out of the 12 seasons. So I could have actually run a fifth year after Princeton and I and I decided not to. But I finished out all four years, made some of the best friends in my life. Good for you. So you did four years of running in college. Yeah. So and for distance runners, that's cross country in the fall, indoor track in the winter. Indoor track is the worst. (laughs) Completely agree. And outdoor track in the spring. So it's an extremely full-on commitment. So what what events did you do when you did track? Did you do the mile and the two mile? Yeah. In college, it's it's the 1500. It's the 1500. And then in outdoor track, I did steeplechase. Whoa. You're a badass athlete. Ah, uh, so steeplechase, real quick. It's, yeah, it's when you uh, you say it. Sorry. <laughs> so steeplechase is an outdoor track event, and it's a three k, which is just under two miles, and you're jumping over big hurdles that don't move. Yeah, and then there's a water jump where you you have to catapult off a barrier into this twelve foot long water pit that's three foot deep at its highest depth. Yeah, it's definitely requires some athleticism that a lot of standard track runners don't have. It's so badass. I mean, besides pole vaulting, I feel like it's the most cool track sport there is. It's kind of like the closest thing to an obstacle race in track. Yeah, 100%. So when you ran in college, you basically did three sports in college and you didn't stop running. You didn't really get a break. Yeah, you don't really have a break. You maybe have a couple weeks off in December. That's really intense. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that you stayed with it for all four years. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's wild. What did you study in school? I studied biology, but specifically ecology and evolutionary biology. And and I specialized in uh, coral reefs. So it actually was like on a whim. I was really injured one year, my sophomore year. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do this summer? I was like, screw it. Like, I'm so pissed off that I'm injured. And some of my non-runner friends were like, you should apply to this internship in Bermuda. And to study coral reefs because I was kind of trying to find my niche in ecology. And and I did. And I got it. And I sort of did it because I was like, oh, I won't be able to run in Bermuda. It'll distract me. And lo and behold, I couldn't run that whole summer. But I was 
scuba diving almost every single day, seeing reefs, relatively healthy reefs, and and really learning about coral and the marine world. That must have been such a freeing feeling to one, not have to run for an entire four months, but also to experience something so different when you're like underwater every day seeing, I'm sure, wild stuff. What did you see? Yeah, well, Bermuda is really cool because a lot of people don't realize it's about the same latitude as like North Carolina. So it's really high. It's like way high above the equator. And that means the water's colder and the fish and the coral are bigger. They're hardier. You don't have as many like delicate fish and coral species that require warmer and more and like less wave action. So Bermuda is like really, really studied as, as a resilient reef. So you graduate from Princeton in four years with a degree in coral ecology. Good for you. So what did you do next? After I finished school, I um, got a teaching fellowship in Thailand. And and that actually had nothing to do with coral reefs, even though I dove a lot there. But I taught there on and like almost for two years on and off. And a girlfriend and I started a little swim program to teach these kids how to swim. Uh, these kids live on like one of the most beautiful beaches in southern Thailand. Like I taught at a school with like a thousand kids, like K through 12 most of whom were like either orphans or underprivileged and and none of them knew how to swim. And it's still happening. It's we called it Earth Raging with English. And it's through this program called Princeton in Asia. And these teachers every year that go, you know, that are freshly graduated have kept this program going. That's fantastic. Yes, yeah, so we get photos of these kids learning how to swim. It's yeah, arguably like the thing I'm like most proud of. I would be pretty proud of that too. I mean, teaching someone to swim is huge, especially when they live in a place like that. How long did you stay there? When it was all said and done, it was almost two years. So, so Thailand sparked this love of environmentalism, but it's also where you found Ultra. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty weird. So I was living in this tiny fishing village, which was a couple hours north of Phuket, if people know where Phuket is in Thailand, southern Thailand. And there was like nothing to do around other than run, honestly. That was like my method of exploration. And I really, really fell in love with running because I had been kind of burned out after four years of, of college running. But once I found myself in Thailand, I'm like, how else am I going to see this place and discover these like oil palm plantations and like, and still oil growth forest and, and coastlines. And, and then like one of the weekends I like had Wi-Fi cause we weren't really, we were like pretty out of touch there. I was like, I, I wonder if there's any races I could sign up for. And I found this 80 kilometer, which is like 50 mile or in Northern Thailand, like way, way, way up there. And I was like, Oh, I should just sign up for this, this is in six months. And some friends and I made a backpacking trip out of it. And so, yeah, that's how I basically became an ultra runner. And I like Googled some training plans. Like I had no idea what I was doing. And I think my longest run was like six hours, which is a pretty long run. That's a legit run. Um, and, and I would stop at these little gas stations and get these like Thai sweets, like sticky rice and like Coke or like the Thai tea. It's so good. And yeah, that was my that was my life, my hobby, I guess you could call it. And then I did this race in northern Thailand, very close to Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. And there are these hill tribe villages in northern Thailand. And, oh, there's just patchworks of gorgeous, like, farmland mixed with really thick forested hills and 
really, really diverse tribes up there. And yeah, I was like alone by myself for 12 hours. And some of the most poisonous snakes in the world are up there. So the pre-race briefing was like, okay, if you get bit by a snake, make sure you take a photo of it. We need a photo so we know which anti-venom to use. And I mean, everyone's just like rolling their eyes like, yeah, if I get bit by a snake, like I'm so dead. <laughs> like, LOL. <laughs> you want me to take a photo? <laughs> I love that you're laughing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty crazy. It was pretty gnarly. There was like a three meter. I don't even know what type of snake it was that was killed like the day before um, the race went off and they hung it. From like the race start. Yeah. Just to show you. Yeah. There's like 30 people who did this. It was, it was pretty core in that regard. (laughs) Were you worried about getting lost? Uh, I mean, I did get lost a few times and you figure it out. Yeah. You kind of have this like, oh, I'll figure it out attitude. Have you been like that always in life or are you just young? I don't know. I mean, it's running. Like, I guess in that case, it is kind of like life or death. (laughs) But like, at the end of the day, it's just running. Like, and I'm doing this for fun. But you loved it. Yeah, yeah. I totally fell in love with it. And I'm like, what is this sport? This is so weird. And my friends were there. They had been caving that day because there's also these really great caves. It's actually like in planet Earth is one of the like cave scenes. Is We're all going to Thailand. I know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then my friends like come from their epic day caving and they cheer me on. It's just like so community. And I was eating this like amazing Thai food the whole time. Oh, that's <laughs> cool. So the race directors put on like the food they were giving you at each ultra stop was yummy oh, Thai food. Yeah. It, there was like, I didn't eat a gel. I didn't. Oh, like, oh absolutely. Tell me not. what the food was. Um, I ate fried rice and then they'd like banana leaves um, covered what would you call it? It's basically like sticky rice with molasses. Um, Yum. Yeah. Like it's like a, a natural version of a gel, you know, just like I bet these sticky rice with molasses things had like 500 calories in them, honestly. And I would just pound them. It was so good. After two years in Thailand, Claire moved back to Boulder, Colorado in 2016. She was preparing to go to med school and she was even working in an emergency room But on a whim that August, she competed in the Leadville 100 race. Not only did Claire win first place, she also set the second fastest female time ever. If you don't know much about Leadville, it's a huge deal for endurance athletes. There's a mystique around this race, so I'll let Claire describe it in her own words. So Leadville, it's one of the oldest races in in the U.S. And it's why it's difficult is because it's so high. It starts above 9,000 feet in the town of Leadville, Colorado, which is basically it would have been like an abandoned mining town. It's not far from like Copper or Vale, if people are familiar with that. And yeah, and then the race like goes up to above 12,000 feet above sea level is the highest point. It's 100 miles. 100 miles? Yeah. It's not 100K, it's 100 miles. Yeah, no, it's 100 miles. Holy F. How mm-hmm. did you get your body <laughs> to do that race? Well, I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. The longest run I did before Leadville was 30 miles. <laughs> so, sorry, my jaws dropped. Wait, how? How? I don't understand. Yeah, I, you know, I don't really either sometimes. <laughs> but now that I'm like more in the sport, I'm like, geez. How did I do that? But also I think it it goes to show that you can 
the key with ultra running, at least for myself personally, is not being overtrained, is showing up healthy, psyched, well-rested, because so much of ultra running is mental and you just can't get injured. So if you show up with those two boxes, like pretty dialed, then you have a, a really high likelihood of having a good day. Yes, you need a baseline of fitness if you're trying to win, but um, yeah, I had no clue what I was doing. I mean, I moved to Boulder in January and I met this group of runners called Rocky Mountain Runners, made some of my best friends. It's this weirdo trail running group. Trail runners are the weirdest. They're but I love so them. weird. And yeah, and they're amazing. And they're just like talking about, you know, crewing hundreds and the most like rural, bizarre mountain ranges that like no one's heard of that are so beautiful. And, you know, they're just really smart people. And I heard people talking about hundreds and I'm like, maybe I should try a hundred this year. Like, why not? And they're like, yeah, yeah, just sign up, do it. And yeah, I did some races during that summer and they're all really fast though. And so I was sort of tapping into my collegiate roots and then, and I showed up at Leadville and had a pretty good day. So you were going to become a doctor, but then <laughs> you run Leadville with what changed? Yeah. Well, so I was scribing. I had these like pretty gnarly shifts, like 12 hours, like four times a week. Um, and I usually would do night shifts. And I honestly think that's one of the reasons why I did so well in Leadville, because I I didn't let myself sit in those shifts because I wasn't running that much or maybe was running like 60, 70 miles a week, which is what I still run today. But I wouldn't sit down when I was working in ERs. And, and I think that just like made my legs really strong. Um, and, and the sleep deprivation stuff I got good at, but then I, I quit because I, I needed to take organic chemistry Oof. before like the second one. Cause I didn't t take it at Princeton, um, before applying to med school. Right. So it was like the final step. And I got, two days into this class at CU. It was like at University of Colorado Boulder, two days into the summer, like expedited course. And I was like, no, <laughs> I had a complete mental breakdown. It was like, I don't want to do this. I don't care like enough about this. And it really made me think like, do I want to be a doctor? And I'm like, I think I can find other ways to help people than to be a doctor and other ways that suit my strengths because academia and organic chemistry are not my strengths. Um, well, you're clearly smart. You went to Princeton, you, you graduated in four years and you ran cross country and, and I can hear you're very articulate, but that's interesting that you didn't give into sunk cost. Like a lot of people would, mm. would, go as far yeah. as you'd gotten been like, well, I'm so invested. I can't quit now. Totally. Yeah. I spent like the last six, seven months. Yeah. Working in hospitals and yeah, I quit and I had no regrets. And then I didn't tell anyone really my parents or my family. And then it was like two weeks after that I ran Leadville and I kind of had nothing going for me because I had quit school, I quit my job, and and then I won Leadville, and then it was so bizarre because I started getting calls from like brands. And I'm like, huh, maybe I could do this as a job. Claire took a wild risk when she decided not to continue to go to medical school 
And some would say an even bigger risk when she showed up to run Leadville without having run anything further than 30 miles before. But Claire's a risk taker. She sees an opportunity and she goes for it, and it sounds like her big gambles tend to pay off. When we return, we'll hear how Claire got drawn into activism at the same time her ultra-running career took off. When Charles Danner arrived in the Pacific Northwest in the 1930s, he brought craftsmanship that stood up to any task. Nearly a century later, it still does. At Danner, they believe in the quality of their footwear and that it's meant to take you somewhere. Danner's Trail 2650 hikers are made with the company's tried and true standard for durability and comfort. Inspired by and named for the 2,650 mile Pacific Crest Trail, these versatile trainers are built to keep you moving quickly and confidently through any terrain. Crafted with lightweight materials meant to withstand tough conditions, they provide traction and stability on uneven ground. A foam midsole cushions the foot and maintains a light load, while the outsole offers confidence-inspiring grip for every step in any condition. Available with breathing mesh lining or waterproof Gore-Tex, the Trail 2650 is up for whatever landscape awaits. Whether you're hitting the trail or strolling through town, these hard-wearing shoes are ready for the rigors and rewards of your next adventure on or off the beaten path. You can shop Danner's Trail 2650 hikers online at REI or Danner.com forward slash trail 2650. That's at REI, REI.com or Danner.com forward slash trail 2650. Supporting the belief that a life outdoors is a life well-lived, having an Icon Pass in your pocket unlocks more unique ski destinations, more days at the mountain, and more road trip adventures with your favorite crew. With winter just over the horizon, lock in tomorrow's turns today and get ready to explore wide open spaces, cut endless lines through fresh mountain air, and discover new adventures with old friends. On sale now, every 2020-2021 Icon Pass comes with Adventure Assurance, giving you the confidence to ride. Discover pass options and plan for adventure at iconpass.com. After winning the Leadville 100, Claire decided to ditch medical school and focus on her career as a professional ultra runner. Simultaneously, something happened in this country that motivated her and a lot of other Americans to take action. If you're interested in getting involved as a climate activist, pay close attention. Claire drops a ton of knowledge and resources on how to get educated and how to make a difference with people who represent you locally and in Washington, D.C. You had this aha moment, like, maybe I can make a career as a runner. So when was this aha moment when you realized you could combine running with environmentalism? I feel fortunate personally. I mean, I really like ache for the for the future of Earth and humanity. But this timing was in the fall of 2016. So I signed with the North Face and it was when Trump was elected. And basically the moment I became a professional runner was 
was intertwined 100% with activism because I felt this immense privilege. I'm like, I get to run and race around the world and, and see and meet people and travel and, and witness climate change and the crazy assaults on our public lands, you know, that just happened immediately when Trump went into office. And I felt it was really my duty to educate, you know, the small following I was creating and and to talk about it amongst my community. Like, this has all been kind of new to me, the trail running community in general. And I'm like, why aren't we talking about this? Like, this is our sport. These are our trails. It's our air. It's our you know, not to mention all of these like way more foundational parts of of the climate crisis, which is, you know, that frontline communities are being way more impacted than like than I am as a privileged trail runner. So after a year, um, I had the amazing opportunity to become a Patagonia ambassador. And that just catapulted my ability to talk about these issues and to really learn because Anyone who's listening who knows Patagonia cares so, so deeply about the climate crisis. I mean, their mission statement has changed to we're in business to save our home planet. And yeah, so my professional running career basically became more personal in a way. And then I I felt like a professional activist in a way. (laughs) But how unique that you've studied environmentalism and ecology and biology in school. So you had this background and then you're able to marry that with running and you got picked up by Patagonia, which is pretty damn cool. So talk to me about trail running and environmentalism. Like what are things that trail runners should be aware of in their impact on the environment? Well, I like to sort of separate it into two categories. So you have like the in situ everyday impacts of like actually running on a trail. And honestly, these are very minor compared to like the global impacts of like emissions and things. But so yeah, stay on trails. Don't run on the side of the trails when they're really muddy because that creates braiding and it widens trails. It can create erosion. Do trail work, you know, at least once a year at a minimum. Most races require it, which is good. But if wow. you can do trail work regularly, that's great. I yeah. didn't know trail races required Most that. like 100, any like legit 100 mile race requires trail work. That's Leadville so cool. doesn't, but that Leadville is kind of corporate. Yeah. So <laughs> I think every 100 mile trail race should require eight hours of trail work. Absolutely. Or volunteering. Yeah. Like don't litter, obviously, basic leave no trace practices. But then you have the larger, which is frankly like way more important that I think athletes in general and people, outdoor lovers are just starting to really grasp that if you really love to be outside, what are you doing to help the climate crisis? And in my opinion, that means engaging in changing the system. And that means getting involved with our democracy and our government. Because if we drive a Prius to a trailhead, that's great. But that is not going to save the world. Like, I don't care if you drive a truck to the trailhead. Don't litter and stuff. But if you can get involved with an organization like Protect Our Winners or, you know, a local climate organization or elect people to your city council who push climate policies, that's way, way more important. So you've also had to get educated pretty fast on climate policy because you've spoken in D.C. about it. How did you get educated so fast? Like, what have you been reading? Who's helped you? Yeah, I'll be honest. It's like called the, it's the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Well, they just told me that. (laughs) 
mean, but I, I, I'm glad you asked it. Cause I think a lot of people might think, oh, you have to have some background or like some degree in, you know, science to, to know about air pollution or how to get involved politically. But the reality is like, this is all at our fingertips. Like you would laugh so hard if you see the questions I Google literally like three years ago, I was like, what is the Senate? <laughs> Like, who are my representatives? Like, what county do I live in? Like, basic things. What district number do you live in? But these are things that so many people don't know. And I commend people who, like, will take the time to actually ask these questions that seem really basic, but it's just not part of, you know, we didn't learn this. I didn't learn it in high school. I didn't learn it in college. And it's not talked about commonly. And so that's sort of like a form of civic duty is like educating ourselves with these very basic things. Like I think at a minimum, everyone should know who their two senators are and and who their representative is. So you have three people representing you in D.C. You should know who those people are because those people matter very much. And you should know what they vote on, especially on the issues you care about. I really appreciate you for letting us all know to do this because I think that's a good call to action for everybody listening to this podcast. How is the best way to get a hold of your representatives? So first, you can find out who your reps are with this great website called Common Cause. I'm pretty sure it's commoncause.com or org. And, And you just type in your address and you can see from the local all the way up to the president who represents you. And then you can click on their websites and you can sign up for their newsletters. So that's a very direct way. I have all of my reps' phone numbers saved in my phone. And so when something relevant I know is going on, I'll call and leave a message and say, hey, you know, there's this Arctic bill coming up. Like, please vote for it. But like, it's a phone message or an email. Like, what's more effective? Phone, 100% phone, because aides have to pick up the phone in these offices and talking to them, like, it's kind of a pain for them, but they have to listen. Whereas emails often get, they don't get overlooked, but they can get grouped together more easily, especially if you're signing, say, a a petition with something, even like POW or like, you know, Conservation Colorado or something. And it's just like a pre-written letter. That's fine. But if they get 500 of those, it's just going to be like that letter times 500. Whereas phone calls, one, you can like have an emotional conversation with a human, which is very important, right? And two, they'll, they'll write down what the issue is and they, and they have to document it in real time. So there is a lot you can do and it can be overwhelming, but it doesn't have to be. It's really cool that you've gotten so involved in politics and you're so young and you're so fiery and you're running, you're like running on all levels. It sounds (laughs) like, you know, you're running races, you know, you're an activist, which is, is, is refreshing. I appreciate that. It's really cool that you know what a privilege it is to be an athlete. Mm. Well, thanks. Yeah. I also, I mean, whether you're a professional athlete or you like to ski or surf or run outside, I personally don't think we really have a choice not get involved in the climate crisis in an advocacy sort of way if we want our grandkids to live in a place with clean air and clean water. I feel so strongly about this. It's like if you like to be outside, we need to go harder in the advocacy side. Full disclosure, this conversation was recorded in January of 2020, before the world was turned upside down. So I reached out to Claire again to see how she's been handling things and how her activism has changed in the face of the pandemic, unprecedented forest fires, 
the ongoing racial justice movement, and the impending election. Hey, Claire, when we last talked, it was January. It's now September. The world has obviously changed. How has your approach to advocacy changed since then? Yeah, it's uh, changed quite a bit in the sense that, you know, the world has been turned upside down due to the pandemic and the civil rights movement our country and world is experiencing right now. And I've changed my approach in that I've tried to take a step back and really learn about all of the racial injustices within the climate movement, because that's, you know, my realm. That's where I do most of my activism and try to really learn and embody that climate justice is racial justice and vice versa. You know, racial justice is climate justice. And so I think more than ever, climate activists like myself need to be holding space for all of the black, brown, indigenous leaders that have been leading in the climate movement for so long. And we need to listen. Is there anybody that you've been following recently that just stands out that is someone you know, we should all follow? Yeah, I'm guessing a lot of listeners probably have heard of her. Her name's Leah Thomas, and I knew her because she worked at Patagonia for the last few years. And she came up with the phrase environmentalists for Black Lives Matter. And yeah, she's completely taken off. She created a platform called Intersectional Environmentalists, and she has just shed so much light on how so many climate issues are impacting mostly non-white people. And we need to be talking about that, especially from air pollution, from unhealthy drinking water. The list goes on and and she spells it out via her platform. She's on Instagram as Green Girl Leah. So that's um, a great place to start. Yeah, she seems really awesome. How has what you've been doing and what you've been seeing also changed the way you're viewing the upcoming election? Obviously, this podcast is coming out in October. It's going to be top of mind for everybody. We're probably going to be a little sick of it at the same time, but it's really important. Yeah. I mean, I think about the election every second of every day. Uh, it's become all consuming. And I and I think a lot of listeners probably will agree. And so then the next question is like, okay, how do we get out of an echo chamber of caring for climate justice? And how do we make subtle changes if those one or two family members that we might be able to flip or those one or two friends that we might get out to vote who might not be voting. And it's exhausting. Like, (laughs) you know, it's made me really get out of my comfort zone of climate science because the people I'm trying to connect with and learn from, their talking points aren't the same as mine. So I need to get out of my climate bubble and and learn more about what makes people tick. And in many ways, I have to talk less about climate change and try and meet people, you know, like whether it's my partner's family members or a friend who might not vote. And I'm trying to convince that friend, you know, like, I really think it's important for you to vote and try and meet them where they're at and not everyone feels the same way you or I do about climate change. And so 
it's sort of important to suss out what makes people tick, right? Like, is it the economy? Is it coronavirus deaths? And so I try to vary my approach on a person to person basis. And I'm not talking to hundreds of people every day. Like, it takes work to talk to one person. It takes a lot of work. It takes sorting through different articles that I think my partner's nephew will connect with. And along those lines, there's also things like postcard writing, getting people out the vote, which is there's a huge national campaign where you can send postcards or letters to unlikely voters and you can volunteer to be a poll worker. Traditionally, poll workers are all retirees. They're elderly. Um, You know, people are so scared of the coronavirus and there's a national shortage of poll workers. So if you're young, you're healthy, you can get time off. You should ask your boss off for work on November 3rd or whatever day that your county might be collecting and counting ballots. Volunteer. And actually, most of those positions are paid. You get paid like 15 bucks an hour to be a poll worker. That's awesome. How do we all stay and how do you stay positive through the election season? Because this is such a chaotic time. And for people so passionate about politics and advocacy work, where are you going right now for happiness? I think everything we do, whether it's actual activism, conversations, volunteering, writing letters, it has to come from a place of love. And when we're talking to our friends and family, we might not agree with like at the end of the day, our foundation has to be love because there's just like no other good option. Whether it be the election this November or her personal climate advocacy work, Claire is driven by love. It's love for family, for friends, the nation, the earth and the air we breathe. Like Claire said, it's really not a wild idea to fight for clean air and a healthy environment. Claire, thank you so much for such a fun and informative conversation. You crack me up and your tips for getting involved in environmental activism efforts on a small or large scale are invaluable, especially right now in this election year. You can find links to the resources that Claire mentioned by heading over to our show notes at rei.com slash wildideasworthliving. You can also follow Claire on Instagram at Claire Gallagher Runs. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Sam Piers Nitzberg, and produced by Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we love it when you subscribe to this show rate it, and review it wherever you listen. We read all of the reviews. And remember, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. <laughs>